Hello everyone and welcome to Provident Podcast. I'm Vincent Tay, Head of the Advisory Team at Provident and today I will be interviewing Daryl Liu, our Chief Investment Strategist, for the latest investment outlook. Now before we begin, just to share that we are exploring different ways to bring investment updates to our clients. That is why we'll be doing an interview instead of just a monologue. Now if you have any preference or feedback, do drop myself or Sherry an email. Thus, without further ado, let me just give Dara our very first question. Dara, you know, in the past year, what happened around the world was anything but significance. Let's not talk about the earthquakes, typhoons, or tsunamis. In the political and economical fronts, there are just so much changes. Now, take the recent events, for example. The doing away of the G8 annual meeting announced by the G20 at the Pittsburgh. The flexing of the masses by the BRIC countries to have more representation at IMF. China potentially replacing Japan as the world's second largest economy in the world ahead of expectation by five years. And even the winning of Rio, beating Chicago, Tokyo and Madrid to host the 2016 Olympic Games. Now, Darren, in your view, what will be the impact to the long-term world economy brought forth by this global shift of power? Thanks a lot, Vincent, for the question. Um, first of all, I must say that it's very nice to have somebody here in the recording as well because it's a bit tiring or a bit weird actually to be talking to myself most of the time. Um, and also now I don't have to worry about the introduction and the conclusion because I always struggle with that when, when recording the podcast. Now, on, on to answering the question about this uh, shift of power. And I think this is, some, this is a particular trend that we have identified um, quite a while back already, the fact that there seems to be a discernible shift of power from the developed nations to the developing countries, and that's evidenced by all the factors that, uh, that you brought up. Um, in terms of the impact on the global economy and on terms of the, in, in, on, on, on terms of the investments, um, I think the, the first thing here is that we are seeing a shift in terms of uh, where the spending power is going to come from. Uh, I think one thing that we recognize that over the past few decades, um, really the global economy has been driven by Western consumption. Um, the fact that the US, Europe and, and Japan uh, have been the main drivers of the global economy in terms of what they've been consuming, what they've been spending. Um, but moving forward, I think everybody recognizes that, that the future really will lie in the emerging markets. The fact that you have 1.3 trillion uh, billion people in, in China, um, you've got about another one, 1 billion in, in India. Uh, the population growth in those those particular areas, they're going to be basic, and as the populations become more affluent, um, they're going to be increasingly more a uh, bigger factor in terms of uh, uh, corporate profits moving forward in terms of what they'll be consuming and buying. Um, so I think this is definitely a trend that we are, we are starting to see. And one of the major impacts as well that we that that as a result of this crisis, we've seen that companies or that countries have basically gone back to the drawing board in terms of reinventing their strategies moving forward. Um, take the Asian countries for for instance. Um, by and large, a lot of Asian countries have been relying on the traditional export-driven model, uh, which means to say that you you produce things at a cheaper price than than what the the Western countries can can do can can produce it for, um, and you're relying on them buying on buying your cheaper goods, and that's the the main factor which has built up a lot of Asian countries. Um, but one of the things moving forward is that we do expect that Western consumption is going to be weak for a prolonged period of time. Um, mainly because of this balance sheet recession they were facing, the fact that you know Western consumers have got to rebuild their balance sheet, which means to say they have to save more and spend less. Um, and so there's a greater emphasis now within the emerging markets of more dom- domestic consumption rather than being more uh, export-driven. 
Um, and that's going to have a material impact, I think, of the way that you know uh, the world will behave in the world uh, in 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 the years ahead. So I think we are we are really starting to see certain instances of this starting to take root. But then again, this is going to be something that will take several years to actually materialize. We don't expect that China, India, and the rest of the the Asian countries and developing nations, for example, will straight away become. Uh, uh, major players on the consumption phase because one of the aspects that we need to recognize as well that US consumption is still extremely large notwithstanding the fact that it's actually been curtailed because of the crisis China's consumption for example only makes up about one-sixth of US consumption so if you just imagine uh, if US consumption reduces by 50% China's consumption has got the triple basically to make up the difference um, and again we don't expect China consumption to triple within one year, you know, it's going to be it's going to take decades for that to actually happen. So we do expect that this is going to be a long, uh, long-term trend. Um, but we are starting to to see shifts of this happening. And from the investment front, really, this is one of the reasons why we we have greater allocations to emerging markets in our portfolios because again, we want to capitalize on this longer-term trend in our portfolios. Thank you, Dara, for that very insightful sharing. Um, does it mean that Dara we would be Looking at a world that is much more well-developed five, ten years down the road from today? What is an interesting question, Vincent? I, I think that, by and large, yeah, the, the global, global, let's say, wealth will definitely increase um, because I think that's the trend that we're moving towards. Um, I think the, the question here is then what, what countries are considered now developing, what countries are still considered, you know, um, you know developed? Um, I think moving forward, let's say, and put ourselves forward 10, 20 years, I think a lot of Asia will become developed countries already. China, I think, will be an established superpower. Um, your emerging markets then could possibly be the likes of Africa, potentially. You know, um, Those might be the up-and-coming nations. I don't know. It's hard to, to have a crystal ball to say what will be the new developing countries moving forward. But by and large, I think it's true that across the world, uh, our GDP per capita, for example, will be a lot higher than it is today because that's basically the, the tenant of growth, right? And if, if this doesn't increase, then why are we investing and why are we living our lives for? So I, I think we, we, we do expect that moving forward, uh, people by and large will be wealthier. Uh, we'll be able to afford more things. Um, and the, the world as a whole, the global economy will definitely be a lot larger than it is today. But maybe let me just add one point as well on the on one of the trends as well um, that we see because of this shift of power. One thing that I, I um, forgot to mention earlier is that there's also a security issue as well, uh, possible repercussion because of this shift of power. And not to alarm anybody here, but um, if you go back to history, whenever you have a shift of power from one established superpower to the next, there's always been a period of conflict. Um, and I think that possibly could be something that we might see in the years ahead as well, because the U.S., in our view, uh, is in structural decline. But if you look at it, they still have military might. They, they still, still, they're still one of the, the country that spends the most on military, uh, hardware, software, you know, every year. Um, and you imagine if their country is becoming less and less economically um, strong, um, but they still maintain the, the military might, it's, it's a, there's a, there might be a likelihood or a risk that they don't want to rel- relinquish power. Um, especially when you have China, an upstart country, on 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 the on the rise, um, so this possibly could cause potential security issues down the road. And not to say that there's going to be a war that that will break out, but I think the the risks and the potential um, um, misunderstandings and negotiations and all that that could arise could possibly increase moving forward. Um, that's something that we do need to monitor as well.
Okay, Daryl, thank you for that. Um, let us just now uh, move our attention back to the shorter terms. Uh, to be real honest, I've been really quite confused by the market recently, the news and the indicators. And Daryl, you know, recently I have actually relocated my home and in a sense downgraded my house and have some funds on hand for a long-term investment. Now, could you share with me what are the potential misalignments in the capital markets currently that will cause unexpected volatility in my investment? Now, this is because I, I really want to write uh, this right better, and hopefully it's not too rough for me and my family. There. Okay, Vincent, I think there are a number of, uh, of short-term factors, or a couple of factors in the market today which could cause short-term fluctuations in the market. Um, I think the, one of the biggest risks in our view um, is the fact that you know uh, Western countries are simply printing their way out of, of this current problem. Um, and as a result of that, we are seeing a sharp rise in the deficits in a lot of these countries. Um, and this, I, I guess if you go back to your Economics 101, this is a necessary step actually that all governments need to take when they have a recession. Governments need to step in to spend money to compensate for the fall in consumption and investments and, and falling exports. Um, but the problem here is that a lot of the countries which are actually taking on this spending um, strategies don't actually have the reserves to do that. Um, and that's really the, 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 the balance that they need to actually try to, to, to achieve. Um, and the issue here really is whether the, the taxpayers and the public can actually take uh, the amount of deficits that their, their budget has been increasing by. Um, in, in a case in point, just one of the risks that we have been identifying for quite a while already is really this exit strategies that a lot of these governments have been talking about. The fact that, you know, um, if the governments decide that because of all these rising deficits, they've got to pull and reduce their spending, for example, um, then we're going to possibly see a correction in the markets, a short-term correction in the markets. Because in our view, I think the global economy really is not strong enough to stand on its own two feet yet. Um, we still expect that it will take a while more for the consumers to have repaired their balance sheet before uh, governments should be pulling uh, the stimulus plans. But again, when you look at the situation today, now stimulus in the US has got a bad name. Um, so much so that when we when we read the the press uh, nowadays, it seems that the U.S. government is very very leery about coming out with a second stimulus package because the first one has already received such negative uh, public backlash. Um, so from what we understand, the the Congress is actually looking at pumping money in quietly without attracting attention. Um, so they're going to be stimulating the economy but not officially calling a stimulus. So there, there are these issues that I think needs to be addressed. Um, in fact. Based on all the research we've been reading as well, I think there's a strong likelihood that in the US at least next year, we possibly will see the government pull back, cut back on their spending um, and possibly increase taxes as well. You know, so if the, if the US economy is not strong enough or hasn't properly recovered by then, um, these, two, these two strategies, cutting back spending and increasing taxes, could cause the US economy to spiral back down. Um, into another recession, or what we what we term as a double dip recession. So I think that that's one of the major risks that we are seeing at this point in time. The fact that if governments pull all the stimulative policies too soon, uh, that will cause definitely an upheaval uh, in the in the investment markets. But then again, we do need to state that this is for the short term. This is a short term view. Over the long term, we expect that actually all these uh, problems in the market would have been solved.
Peter, uh, thank you for that. Again, in a, a short-term question, you know, one of the significant events last week was Australia's central bank hiking their interest rate. Uh, the first among the developed nations. What's your view on this with respect to asset prices, bond and currency markets in particular? Okay, our view on this, uh, effectively, if you look at it, um, the Australian economy is one that is actually very different from the rest of the countries all over the world. Um, and it, and again, I think Australia is probably one of the few countries that could have actually increased rates at this point in time. Because when you look at it, um, their their economy has has not really contracted in this recession. They've actually we've we've stood the impact of this great recession a lot better than a lot of other countries. Mainly due to a couple of reasons. One, commodity markets by and large have still been doing pretty well. Um, so that has basically propped up the 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 Australian market, the Australian Australian economy. Second main factor: Australian banks are very conservatively run, and because of that, they didn't really suffer any of the financial you know uh, backlash from the subprime mortgage backed security market and all that. Um, so because of these these two reasons, uh, the Australian economy is actually in a lot better shape than a lot of other countries. Um, and because of the very, very low interest rate, global interest rate environment, uh, there's been asset bubbles that have been growing within Australia, in the property market, for example. So I think at this, at this point in time, the Australian Central Bank basically thought that they needed to nip the, the, the problem in the bud and uh, basically be a bit more proactive in increasing rates first before asset prices spiral out of control. So that's really the context of why Australia... Um, has been the first country to increase rates. Now, in terms of possible repercussion on asset prices, the the first main impact on the rise of interest rates has really been uh, positive for equity markets because, by and large, the this has fueled sentiment, uh, the investment sentiment here that you know the world has recovered, um, things are going back to normal, and the fact that the first developed central bank has actually hiked rates could be a sign that the rest of the central banks will be quick to follow as well to basically reinforce the fact that you know things are going back to uh, the normal kind of recovery. Um, however, in our view, we think that that this could be a bit more, bit premature to to expect that the other major central banks, that's the the U.S. Federal Reserve, for example, the Bank of Bank of England and the European Central Bank, and even the Bank of Japan, to be hiking rates so soon. In fact, after this um, announcement from Australia, um, the other major central banks also met. That's the ECB and the Bank of England, and both of them decided to keep rates at the current levels. Uh, because basically the view here is that their economies have not, re- uh, it's not really out of the woods yet. So basically. To, to, to just recap this situation here, I think a number of market analysts have come out to revise the expectations about rate hikes because Australia has been the first one to do it. Um, but I think a number of other more um, other economies out there are of the view that it's probably still too premature to be talking about rate hikes at this point in time. So basically, we don't expect the, the main uh, con- the developed nations, your G3 countries to be increasing interest rates for the next 6 to 12 months at least um, because the economies are still relatively weak. Def- uh, inflation is not a problem at all. Uh, if you look at the CPI numbers, in fact, deflation could be a bigger risk in a couple of these countries. In Japan, for example, deflation is coming back into the picture. Um, so we don't expect them to be hiking rates. Um, in fact, it, uh, if there are any countries who would increase rates, it's in the emerging market space. You know, countries like Brazil, for example, uh, countries like Korea or Indonesia in the Asian space. Um, so that's where we could see possible rate hikes. Um, so when you when you when you look at the asset prices, um, I think equity markets have been going on a different different fundamental altogether, or actually not on fundamentals at all. Um, but on the bond market space, we see that there's potential risk on the uh, on the 
Asian bond space, which is why we are we are talking to and communicating with our Asian bond managers very closely to basically see what kind of strategies they are taking in in view of the fact that we could see rate hikes coming out from Asia um, soon. But the major impact actually of the the rate hike in Australia has been on the currency markets. Um, the fact that uh, that that has caused uh, the Aussie dollar to strengthen quite quite uh, quite a lot against the US dollar. It's caused, it caused the US dollar to to depreciate further against the developed nation con- uh, currencies, um, and it's caused a lot of upheaval in the currency market. So much so that even Ben Bernanke had to come out to state that you know uh, if things normalize in the US, they will probably look at increasing interest rates. Um, though he's not saying that he's going to be increasing interest rates sooner than what people expect. But by and large, we've seen a lot of intervention in the currency markets. Asian central banks, for example, coming in to defend their currencies, um, at least preventing their currencies from appreciating too much. Though on the flip side, uh, we, we, we see reports here about Asian central banks also reducing their, their um, US dollar holdings. So there's, there's quite a lot of upheaval and volatility within the currency markets. By and large, we do think that you know the the bearish views on the US dollar may be a bit overblown. While we agree that the long-term view on the dollar is negative because of the rising deficits, uh, we see similar problems in all the developed countries as well. Japan has, is in trillions of dollars of debt, uh, the UK as well, uh, Europe as well. So basically, if the US dollar is going to be depreciating, the question here is against which currencies. You know, uh, Possibly you can make a case that the US dollar will be depreciating against your Asian currencies, but by and large, a lot of Asian countries manage their currencies on a peg or against a basket of currencies. Um, these Asian currencies, uh, countries don't want to allow their currencies to appreciate too much against the dollar as well because it's going to affect their exports. And at this point in time, while in the f- very first question we said there's been a shift away from export-driven model, at this point in time, a lot of countries are still quite reliant on the export model. So we're not going to see a sharp reversal of this strategy, I think, in the immediate term. So because of that, we, we don't think that there's going to be um, at least the, the negative view on the US dollar is a bit overblown, especially when you look at it on a fundamental basis, on a purchasing power parity basis, the US dollar is actually undervalued against a lot of other currencies. Um, so we're not too concerned about it from the currency standpoint. Daryl, thanks for all this. It's been very helpful. You have really put things very succinct and simple for me to understand. Now, just one last question is that could you share with me, you know, how are you positioning uh, the Provident portfolios currently with all these pieces putting together? Thanks, Vincent. Um, this is a question which is actually very hard for me to answer at this point in time because actually we are in the process of making certain changes to the portfolios. Um, for for PGP portfolios, we're actually in the process of actually investing the money at this point in time into into a wide range of different assets, um, primarily into those assets which haven't appreciated so much. You know, so again, the details of this will be will be clearer, made clearer in the next few weeks once all these trades have been have been put through because we actually a number of these trades are actually still in process so I can't actually comment on this at this point in time but besides that 
um, for the rest of our portfolios as well, um, even our IFAS portfolios, we are in the process of actually looking at whether we need to make certain changes. One of the things that we will be discussing is, um, and right now we don't have an answer to that right now, um, is what is the potential impact on the government bond space? You know, Because if you look at the situation, government bonds are always part and parcel of every portfolio. Uh, it provides diversification. And in, in the event of a correction, actually traditionally government bonds actually do very well. Um, but the problem in this current market condition is that if your traditional government bonds may not be so safe anymore because the main the main governments you know the u s the the u k uh, europe japan for example they're all as we we've talked about before already um seeing increasing deficits you know so the whole question here is whether investors are still willing to treat these government bonds as risk free investments um and I think this it's not really clear, at least from our perspective yet. We see that the risks in the government bond, government bond space will definitely be increasing. But the question here is then what other asset do you shift to in the event of a correction? Because you still need that diversification in the portfolio. So again, this is something that we are working on um, at the investment committee level. We are going to be discussing what if if what kind of strategies do we want to take in the event of um, uh, let's say a, a pullback within the government bond space? You know, maybe some other government bonds, maybe Singapore government bonds might be doing better, might hold up better in the event of a correction because we do have the reserves. Um, but again, we don't have the answer to that yet. But this is something that the investment team, together with the investment committee, is working on. Um, Besides that, we are also looking at increasing um, or at least reinstituting the the exposure to the alternative space within the PGP portfolios. Um, just to recap again, uh, our portfolios, at least on the PGP side, have got an allocation to alternatives, which traditionally means hedge funds. Um, but because of our concerns in the hedge, hedge fund space over the last couple of uh, last couple of months, we actually, re- we actually reduce or remove the, the hedge fund component until we fine-tune our due diligence process and became comfortable with what exactly uh, these hedge funds invested in. Uh, we are we are actually in the process of evaluating one of one particular fund it has been put up for discussion in the investment committee. Uh, we expect that this this discussion sh- and should be finalized within the next couple of weeks. And if successful, we'll be looking at putting in one of these hedge funds in the portfolios as well. Unfortunately, on the IFAS side, we don't expect um, that we will be instituting hedge funds back in the portfolio so soon. Because the problem here is that really the access to instruments. Um, by and large, on the on the IFAS space, uh, the only hedge funds you can put in are fund of hedge funds, but we are very leery of using fund of hedge funds at this point in time. Because following the Madoff scandal, you know, if even uh, established fund of fund managers like Tremont could get it wrong and put money with uh, with Madoff, um, what's more, other hedge fund fund of hedge funds. So because of that, we've we've taken a more uh, conservative approach in deciding what kind of funds we want to allocate the money. So in the interim, we are just deciding to actually remove hedge funds out from the IFAS portfolios altogether. So really, these are some of the things that we are looking at doing. I think things will be clearer. I'll probably have more to update at the next podcast based on what are the changes and based on our our research findings. Thanks so much, Tara. This update has given me much insight to prepare my investment journey for the months to come. Not only did I thoroughly enjoy it, I have benefited much in knowing how to align my long-term goals with short-term fluctuations of my investment. I hope you have enjoyed and benefited as much as I have. Just a little notice to make to all of you, podcast will be amended to a bi-monthly features. Hence, we look forward to speaking to you again in December. On behalf of everyone at Provident, 
thank you for tuning in to the Provident Podcast. Here's Vincente signing off.